Hi, and welcome to Loops, a podcast brought to you by Caribou Projects. We're an arts collective based in Bristol, and each episode we collaborate with a guest artist, cultivating conversations around social histories, folklore, visual arts, music, and everything else that falls between the cracks. My name's Sean. And I'm an artist based in Essex in the UK, which is about 20 miles east of London. And as an artist, my projects, I guess they would, I would describe them as often responding to sort of socio-political, historical and sort of human attributes of a given site. So the projects tend to sit somewhere between site-specific and site-responsive. Um, but in, in 2014, I uh, moved back to Basildon uh, for the first time in a while. And I, I, began, I began to become a bit more interested in the local history of my, of my hometown of Basildon. Maybe that was to do with that I was coming back as, a sort of, as an adult. So um, where, you know, prior I might have disregarded that. And then that kind of interest of that history kind of got me into... I created a project called Plot. Um, and Plot so far has included paintings, uh, photographs, research, briquette uh, making workshops, uh, research panels, sculptures, walks, and more recently an information lectern and a road sign. Um, so this podcast episode, we're going to sort of use the plotlanders as a kind of main theme that runs through the narrative of the podcast, but we're also looking at it in wider context as well. So just a little bit of um, a short introduction, the Plotlanders would, I would describe them as a sort of radical DIY community. And they, so in Basildon in the sort of late 1890s, there was an agricultural depression, which led to the farmland being sort of split up into plots. And those plots were sold, actually originally targeted as weekend retreats for East Londoners. But in the end, a lot of kind of early purchasers of of plots, they ended up moving down there permanently. Um, especially sort of around the Second World War and after. And the, I would say the Plotlanders had sort of a back-to-land ambitions. They grew vegetables, they had sort of farm animals. Um, but also, really, that DIY nature really comes through when you see that a lot of Plotlanders built their own homes from scratch using kind of local material, well, local and salvage materials and various processes. And it's a really interesting kind of vernacular architecture. But unfortunately, the Plotlanders came to an end when Basildon was designated as a new town in 1949, and that led to the sort of compulsive purchase of, well, a majority of the Plotlanders to clear the land for the new town to be built. And I guess what we're going to try and do is we're going to kind of look at the Plotlanders as a sort of main thread, but we're also going to kind of sort of spin off and look at it in context with other current issues. So, for example, land ownership the self-build movement, different artist projects that sort of readdress our relationship to the land, agriculture, and also each other as a community. For the Plotland historical part, we spoke with a local historian and heritage leader in Basildon, and we also spoke with a author who's written two books on the Basildon Plotlands. Her family were part of kind of the weekender movement for the Plotlanders between the 50s and 80s, Though her family never ended up moving, moving down permanently, but they still have a really interesting story there. Uh, we all spoke with an artist about her 
her project residency in a shed. She's turned her shed on her allotment in Cornwall into a residency programme, which has just started, which is really exciting. We've also spoke with an organisation in the Lake District who, you know, centres collaborative production and um, functional art. And we also spoke to an architect originally from the Netherlands who's living in Zurich uh, in Switzerland about um, new types of self-building as well. And we also spoke to an artist about issues around land ownership in the UK and her self-build project with the Homeless Charity Crisis, um, which took place in Newcastle in the UK. My name's Ken Porter. I chair two local history groups, one being the Landon and District Community Archive, which is a really web-based for people's memories and stories. Uh, the second one is the Basel and Borough Heritage Group, uh, and we're based down at um, Green Centre, Watt Tyler. Due to the agricultural um, depression back in the 1870s, 1880s, the land a lot of the land in Essex um, uh, become barren, shall we say? Scrubland you know, grew up. It had been a very, very wet, wet period. Speculators moved in and bought the land up, or the farmers went broke and just walked away. Some twenty years later, they started to sell the land off uh, for uh, development. Uh, uh, small plots, five pounds, ten pounds a plot, and that's where the term at the plotlands really comes into being. The Basildon, Landon, Pitsy area was the ended up being the greatest density in the country, though there was plotlands scattered all over. And being close to London, the majority of um, people moving down and buying a plot of land. Uh, well, for a, should we say from East London? I'm Deanna Walker, and I've been fascinated by Plotland history because my family um, owned a little weekend Plotland place just outside Landon, which is in the Basildon area of Essex, and they owned it from the mid 50s to the 80s. So I grew up experiencing the Plotlands. And then I decided to collect together my family and, and various Plotland friends' memories of the area and collect their photos. It started off as a, a little project just to, to sort of throw out my own family and then expanded into actually writing a, a book about the Plotlands. And then once that got published in 2001, I got a lot of feedback from people who had lived in the area and it enabled me to meet a lot of other plotlanders and use their experiences and interviews with them and photos to actually um, do research for another book that I wrote with somebody called Peter Jackson who had, had lived on the plotlands himself. Friday night would be exciting for me because in the summer, um, as soon as I got home from school, my dad would sort of pack the car up and, and off we'd set. And the little huts, as I say, we'd go to, it's very, very basic. It was pretty much kind of one room, but we had paraffin lamps to light it. We had a two ring 
Callagas hob to, to cook on. The toilet was like a very, very small shed at the bottom of the garden that had a, like a bucket filled of jays. So it wasn't the most fragrant of places to go, especially in, in sort of hot summer. And in terms of there was no sort of other main services or water or anything laid on actually at the plot. So as soon as you arrived, you'd have to open everything up and then go trudge off down to the, the standpipe that was probably, you know, sort of about 100 or so. I think we were lucky that it was about 100 feet away from where our plot was to sort of bring things back to, to be able to cook it with it. For me, it was this wonderful sense of freedom that you could go and wander around the grassy lanes, you could go exploring and just sort of being out in nature the whole time. And, you know, there's always a lot to do in terms of maintenance of, the, of cutting grass and keeping bushes and stuff under control, mending bits of the roads because you know, they were all just grass and often very muddy lanes. So you had to keep them maintained yourselves if you actually wanted to be able to sort of drive over them. So it was, it was just this lovely sense of going and being away from, I mean, a built up sort of urban area of Dagenham, being able to sort of just have the freedom to, to, to go out and explore and play. I'm Georgia Gendel and I am an artist living and working in Cornwall in Penryn. I have like two strands to my work and one's like an outdoor practice which I use the allotment for and then an indoor practice which I have a studio for. I have an allotment which I've turned into a sort of very very low-key project space and um, hosting residencies on there for artists and that's called Residency in a Shed. I really like facilitating projects and I basically like four years ago was given two allotment plots because the allotment was sort of unsellable because it was half in shade so I was given this quite huge allotment plot with the idea to do something there and it was they said you can do whatever you want but like yeah we want something a bit other than just allotments happening Um, and I just thought this is too big for just me and I want other people to be using it. So yeah, this is the first year and uh, yesterday was the start of the first person's residency up there. So it's all very fresh. The span of people doing it is like people interacting with it in different ways. And I hope at the end we'll have sort of quite a nice map of where people have spent time. And I'm I'm interested to see what comes from it. I, I really don't know. There was a a small sort of shed on it. It was probably about sort of 10 foot by 10 foot shed that was on it. And my my dad then worked on it and built a kind of a little four foot extension and then a veranda on the back. I mean, it really was a very basic shed. I've seen pictures of it to start with. But I I think it shows the pride and the attention that Dad put into it. That I mean, he completely transformed it, put sort of shiplap timber on the outside of it, re-roofed it, and then inside they he kind of lined it with with hardboard, and then you know actually built in sort of built-in wardrobe and a fold-down bed and kitchen cupboards in this really tiny little area and then wallpapered it and put lino down so inside this was a kind of a lovely little well it was still a little chalet sort of area 
the shed came like a couple of years ago and it was just like from my dad's garden and it was like derelict and so we brought it up there and so I spent a summer doing it up and making it an artwork in itself. I'm quite into worms and I wanted to be as productive as a worm so I took a load of worms into a hardware store and got them to you know they can like scan colors and make paint out of it so they scanned all these worms and then made this paint from it for me and it's it's like gray which is really weird I see the shed as like an artwork in itself so that was sort of like my own little thing and I'm I'm really into DIY so I just really enjoyed doing that for summer and then it's just so seasonal because then you're not there in the winter and then last year I didn't get up there very much and so this year especially with lockdown I just like really went into it hard and have built an extension on it and made the allotment rabbit proof. My parents originally got one back in the mid 50s they were living in Islington at the time sort of just renting a couple of rooms in a shared occupancy house with no garden or anything like that and they were very kind of you know working class family Um, but they wanted somewhere to actually be able to go and escape from London um, at weekends so they looked around the sort of Essex countryside and it was actually one of my uncles that first found a plot Lamedon, just outside what's Basildon now. So they went and had a look at it and they managed to buy this little plot of land that was probably about kind of 20 foot by 120 foot long. And it was a private sale and they paid £75 for it in total. And that was the start of the 30 years of of owning this little wooden hut. Um, And it really was a little wooden hut. It was not much bigger than a shed when they first went down there. And by the time they'd extended it a bit, it was probably only about sort of 14 foot by 10 foot, made out of wood with a flat roof. So it was very, very basic. But my dad was a very practical man and he just loved the chance to be able to sort of turn this little hut into something that he owned because my parents throughout their lives only ever rented it with either private landlords or council. So that for them, it was a chance to have a little bit of, a, of their own land, be able to grow flowers, be able to grow vegetables. And my parents were immensely pleased and proud of having this. And then, of course, as I say, my uncle got a plot, then various other relatives got plots. So for them, in the sort of 50s and 60s, with all their sort of family around them, it became a real sociable thing. You know, weekends and in the summer, they would, would go down there. And by the time I came along, because they had me a bit later in life, I was growing up in the 70s and going there kind of weekends and holidays. But it already was waning at that point. So my experience of the Plotlands was very different from them in the sort of heyday, I would say, of the sort of 50s. Hi, I'm Bart. I work as an architect in Zurich, Switzerland, but I studied in the Netherlands in Delft, where I also lived for many years, and in Rotterdam. And at the same time, I have an allotment, I have bees, I have a dog, and I have a project about the zoo, which I'm also very involved in. I think it's such a beautiful idea to be able to take your time to build something and then adapt and I also, I really hope that we'll be able to do that within the next 10 years or something. And then uh, maybe 
is that also sounds very spoiled but maybe it's not your your first house maybe it's more your holiday home where you can do that and and you live in an apartment in the city or in another house so you can still live your normal life but also have that freedom to to build whatever you want and and i wonder because maybe we we are a generation that has all grown up in towns new towns and then moved to a city to study that now we're all being nostalgic about living on of the land and etc sometimes sometimes i have discussion with older people that say that i'm being a either a, a delayed hippie or nostalgic by having the feeling that i i should go back to the land and grow my own food but at, at the same time i think there is something very beautiful in it that I wouldn't want to miss. So I think the city is super important for me, for my lifestyle, for the exchange that I have. But at the same time, I keep dreaming of having this luxury of, uh, of more land around me that I can kind of have an interaction with and live from and give good stuff to so that I get good stuff back. I'm Adam Sutherland. I'm the director of Grisdale Arts and I work in the Lake District at um, the Grasdale base, which is um, a small holding called Lawson Park. I've been working here for 20 years, and I started, when I first started, there was a fairly traditional format, which was um, artist residencies. The, res the artists came individually, they had a rather small budget, and they basically made something in the forest. So it was the kind of origins of it was this sort of like a sculpture trail, really, a kind of residency uh, idea. And originally set up really by the Arts Council along the lines of the artist placement scheme that um, Barbara Stavini and John Latham set up, um, working in industry, so forestry being the industry. But yeah, I arrived in 99 with a kind of re reinvent remit. Uh, the main thing I changed immediately I arrived was to bring all the artists together at the same time because I've always been interested in collective working um, and that was a fairly big shift. And the other thing we did which at the time was seen as very weird was we carried on working with the same artists um, year, year on year. So we ran the program like that for about five years uh, creating collective projects that uh, all of the artists could be involved with. I used to think if everybody works together physically, like doing gardening or something, it's a natural point of connection. It's a way that people will talk and communicate and think. And, but I think um, bringing people together is probably one of the strongest elements of most residency programs. I think the land side of things here... I mean, different people react in different ways to it. I, I guess I mostly value it as a connection to some of the kind of thinking behind the program, the idea of rein, reinventing. I mean, that is very strongly illustrated by uh, living in a temperate rainforest uh, where you have, <clears throat> obviously, the change of the seasons suggests reinvention and rebirth as a continual process. So I think a lot of those kind of cycles are uh, are quite important to people to realise. Yeah, they're they're involved in that. A lot of the um, potlanders that I've met who were permanent residents, particularly around the sort of the Dunton Hills area where the um, Essex Wildlife Trust is based now, they were saying 
the community really had to rely on itself because when with a lack of kind of mains for facilities for plots and no one really maintaining roads it was very often up to them they would club together to pay for having paths laid so that in bad weather that there was some concrete path you know that would take people to, to walk as far as kind of the shops in Landon or the, the railway station because a lot of people were still having to commute into to London who who lived there and, and that sense of the community helping to support each other it really came through and uh, you know, there was a little school in Dunton that a lot of the Plotland children who were permanent residents attended. So they would all socialise together as well. And, you know, it was a real privilege to, to find out more about their lives and particularly the ones who had been there through the war as well, when a number of people came out from London to start living in, in, in what had formerly been their weekend places and then ended up living there throughout the Blitz. So again, that sense of community really built up and then endured beyond the, the kind of wartime necessity. I'm Julia Hetzlop and I'm an artist. I live in Newcastle. I'm also working at Newcastle University as a postdoctoral research fellow in architecture. And I originally trained as a painter at the Glasgow School of Art, but my work since sort of moved into more sort of installation, large-scale architectural installation work over the past few years. Often my installations are quite large-scale, built out of timber, sometimes metal, and often take as their sort of theme or subject issues of social spaces, issues of housing, issues of architecture, but increasingly my work's become um, interested in the issue or the problem of land and who has access to it and, do, and who doesn't have access to it and thinking about ownership of, of land um, as well, particularly thinking about community ownership of land, so how we can have more access to land but also how, how we can have more community ownership of land through things like cooperative housing projects, community land trusts and things like that. So we worked with members of the homeless charity crisis. So these are people who are in housing need, um, some of which were sofa surfing, some of which were rough sleeping. And we worked with them. So it was me alongside an architect and a joiner. We worked with them a group of people over a period of four months uh, to train them up in joinery, woodwork and design skills. And then during that time, we uh, built a prototype of a house. And it was a very much like a very large shed, um, but it was about 10 metres by 5 metres. So it's quite substantial in size. So about 50 square metres with a large sort of decking outdoor area. So we built it in sections using the seagull method. So it was all timber frame method of building. And then we went on to site for two weeks um, to build it. So that was in um, the Oosburn area of the city, which is sort of an ex-industrial area of Newcastle. And we built that in two weeks on site. And then that was building was then open to the public. And we uh, hosted a series of events, film screenings, artist residencies, all looking at issues of homelessness self-build and, and housing crisis as well. So we built it, as I say, pretty quickly. And during that time, um, members of crisis got skilled up in that process. So they undertook qualifications and 
the important thing was about building those social networks and those social skills. So it wasn't just about, you know, build, build, build. It was about, you know, how we create an ethic of sort of care for each other. Um, and that was really important. That, and that's actually something that's really lovely in the allotment is there's a lot of like seed swapping and often I'll come up to my allotment and I, I will have been gifted a big marrow or a courgette or because someone's grown too much and so they just bring it up and they pop it in your shed and so there is there is that going on which is really nice and you don't so you don't necessarily see people but you'll know that someone's sort of thought of you and, and brought you something which is really nice. My view of land has always been it belongs to whoever works it um, but yes yeah, so a complicated issue in somewhere like the Lake District because there's a huge number of stakeholders as in kind of theoretical stakeholders or pe people that use the landscape so people that are on mountain bikes or walkers or you know there's hundreds of different kind of leisure uses of the space here and there's a strong sense that it's publicly owned it belongs to everyone which is actually not even remotely true. Um, so you do, yeah, you get some interesting ideas. I think the one thing that came out of this body of research into sort of self-build housing was the issue of land. I mean, that was the foundational issue that came out of it. Um, and then when we were doing proto-home, it was really difficult for us to get access to land even on a temporary basis. Um, and one of the housing officers at Newcastle Council walked around with us and pointed out all of the sites that weren't owned by the council and um, for us to potentially use. And I said to her, I was like, why, why are you pointing out all the sites that you don't own or that I don't own considering that I pay my taxes? Um, and she's like, because it's too difficult to get access to council-owned land, even on a temporary basis because of the licenses involved, etc. So even land that is owned by us, you know, by local authorities um, and the government, we still can't get access to, you know. Um, and it just became this key thing. And, and it's the reason why we don't see more self-build housing. And the problem with house, housing prices is not so much the price of the bricks and mortar or the price of the labour. It's the price of the land that's the issue. That's why housing prices are so high, because land prices are through the roof. You know, um, and there's no control over it by government. There's no, for example, land tax for keeping land empty or anything along those lines, um, which means that underused land stays underused or land that is banked, for example, by landowners or by supermarkets or whatever that might be, stays that way because there's no tax, which means that what you see is you get the same sort of housing developments coming through by developers and house builders that um, have the money to buy up a lot of land, a lot of areas of land and negotiate with that. Um, and often we see that they have international investors on board because obviously land is also a good place to store money because it's finite. You can't make more of land. So you know that it's a safe investment to put your money into. And this is a key problem both in the countryside, but increasingly in urban areas uh, where you're seeing international investors putting money into land because they don't know where else to dump their excess capital, basically. Um, so it's, it's a problem everywhere. I think the same thing is happening in a lot of countries, that the building regulations are so strict 
uh, it's also I live in Switzerland now that that there it's really the case that if we get an assignment to build a house on a certain plot, actually the building regulations almost already fixed the kind of house you are going to build because you need to uh, have a maximum revenue on the house because it's very expensive to build. So if you don't build all the square meters that you can, you're uh, ripping yourself off because then you can't have two houses in one house, which you could then rent out and make more money, etc. And what they're trying in Almere, especially, also because it's it's new land, it's a new town, uh, to also have new forms of architecture there. So uh, instead of having these uh, endless rows of the same houses, which the Netherlands is also known for, and which was done a lot in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and still in the 2000s, now they're trying to diversify uh, these housing schemes so that everybody can kind of build their own dream house, a bit more like an American suburbia, and in that sense, create a new townscape where also people have a different feeling or a different attachment to the way they live because the house is more personal to them. It's more uh, really their space instead of something they bought out of a catalog. So we started more and more to hear rumours of, oh, they are starting to build around here. And then by the sort of mid-70s and late-70s onwards, we would find that more and more areas of, that had been former plotland areas, you'd go for a walk one day and suddenly discover that whole areas had been cleared and you, there were signs of building work starting you really started to, to feel that everything was encroaching in on you. And I can remember very vividly my mum and I going for this walk once and we could hear this sound through, through you know, this sound of like heavy plant machinery, tractors or whatever, um, in the distance and this horrible sort of sound of ripping wood and we didn't know what it was. And as we got a bit closer, we discovered that there were bulldozers knocking down kind of plotland huts and at that point, you couldn't avoid it. You could just see this was the beginning of the end. And I remember that being quite sobering, really, because as a, as, as a child, as this was, for me, kind of this magical, idyllic landscape. And suddenly you realised that the kind of modern world, the real world, was getting closer and closer. And what we discovered then by the sort of early 80s was that the housing estates were getting closer and closer to the other side of the railway, which in turn meant more and more people were sort of wandering around. And with a lot of the Plotland places becoming falling vacant, as often the sort of elderly people that had originally had it, you know, they, they didn't want to come down and spend, you know, whole weekends cutting grass anymore. They were getting too old for that. So places just fell out of use. And then, of course, more places were getting kind of damaged and vandalised. And a couple of times when in, in the early 80s, when we went down there, our place had been broken into and damaged. And we started to feel a bit unsafe there. And I remember the kind of last couple of weekends that we spent down there in the early 80s, we really did feel a bit nervous. It didn't feel the kind of safe place it had been before there were a lot more people wandering around and you weren't always sure of what their intentions were so when it got to about 1983 dad was becoming a bit kind of disillusioned about going down and finding it like that and they did go down once and, and discover that actually it had been pulled down by kind of we were presuming vandals 
and dad was just heartbroken and, and came back and said that that's it we, we and I never saw it like that thank goodness but he just said we're not going you know we can't that's it we're going to get rid of it and so he actually approached um, Basildon Development Corporation and agreed to, to sell the plot to them so he ended up selling it in in 1983 and then we did go a few times kind of new you know, morbid curiosity got the better of us so we'd go down and have a little walk around and of course, by that stage, they'd pulled our plot down. So you couldn't, there was no sign of the actual dwelling, but the, the gardens and stuff were still there, get, obviously getting more and more overgrown. So we did often walk around the area, but by then the sort of late 80s, actually they had started then doing some development work on, on the area. So in fact, you'd go down and discover there isn't, you know, there was nothing left at all. So that was a kind of, you know, the ending, you know, of it for us, really. So I'm currently walking around the Dunton Plotland area in Basildon, where Deanna's family would have had their plot. And, um, it's interesting still being able to see kind of the different remnants and uh, the sort of structures and being able to kind of walk different, um, you know, plot and paths uh, that are kind of still present in the same location. And it's, there's something quite nice about, because it offers that chance for you to kind of imagine and it offers context for kind of seeing what it would have been like for people to live here. And, um, and actually not that far away, there's a museum called The Haven, which is an old, um, 1930s Plotland home that's been kind of kept and restored in, in its existing way which is also kind of helps that yeah helps people that want to learn about the history so it's kind of got that positive element but it's also got that sort of like there's a slight melancholy here as well because it kind of gets me thinking about the development corporation the development corporation set up as part of kind of an entity within the Newtown Basel Newtown program their role was in essence to or initially was to kind of you know identify you know land ownership and undertake compulsive purchasing to clear the land for building. And looking at, you know, it's said that the designated area of Bazan had about 30,000 um, freehold ownership that required compulsive purchasing, which is a massive number. Um, you know, there's a large amount of people to be, you know, socially and geographically displaced. But some people welcomed the prospects of the new town and the kind of, you know, the modern amenities and updates that would have come with, you know, inside you know, running water, inside bathroom, modern kitchen sort of thing. Um, because, you know, the Plotlanders was inherently a hard way of life, um, and not a lot of Plotland people don't shy away from that. But also, there were Plotlanders, and many Plotlanders that resisted all the way up to the end. They'd built their homes from scratch, and that was their freehold land. They owned it, it was theirs. So, yeah, a lot of people, it said, didn't go gently, as it's described. There's accounts of people barricading themselves into their homes. There was public protests up in London from locals about losing their land. And there's a sort of phrase that kind of comes up quite a few times when, when I've looked at this history of Basildon. And it's the phrase, Basildon was built on tears, which initially when I read that, I thought, well, that's quite a poignant statement. And the more I've looked into this history, the more I realised that for many, that was the case, and it wasn't was built on tears. I mean, I'm very pleased that that part of Dunton Hills didn't get built on, and that the uh, Wildlife Trust were able to preserve 
the kind of grid pattern of, of the lanes that were there. So you can still walk up the various lane, different avenues that are there and that they were sensitive to, to the fact that these were a lot of former Plotland gardens that, that were there and that they've left some of the kind of old bits of the ruins of, of the places so that it is still possible, or it certainly was the last time I went there, whether it's all changed in the last couple of years, but it was still possible to sort of see the the footings of various buildings that are, you know in bits of rubble and stuff and see the fence posts of gardens and, and occasionally you'd come across an old Anderson shelf or something like that and and I think it's it's really good that they did maintain this and didn't build on that it's a shame that some that, that some of the the former plots a few more of them couldn't have been kind of left but the problem was by the, by the time Essex the Wildlife Trust was, was sort of taking over that area, a lot of the buildings were being kind of burnt out. You know, there was a spate of kind of arson on the site. So a lot of those buildings were kind of going any, you know, were just being kind of burned down. So, you know, it certainly wasn't the intention to clear that site. But I mean, obviously, people had moved out. But, you know, as I say, everything, you know, was disappearing. And it's good that they were able to maintain one Kind of former bungalow on on their site that were that the haven that was actually um, lived in permanently by you know Plotland family up until the sort of eighties. So it was it was good that they were able to sort of maintain that. I think it would have been lovely if if that development there could still have been people living in in some bits of these areas. You know that, that it was a shame that that Basildon decided they had to clear the whole site in, in the 80s when they didn't actually end up building on any of it. And, and for the people who lived there at the time, it was clearly heartbreaking. They didn't want to leave their, their plots, but were forced out of it. I do think that there could have been a bit more of a sympathetic treatment of people at that, that point. But whether um, it still would have been inevitable that, you know, even if they hadn't cleared them then, whether people, you know, once the kind of generation that were living there then had moved away or didn't want to live there whether anyone at that stage in the sort of 80s 90s would have wanted to have taken you know those plots on as basic as they were is is an, is a is a different thought really i mean it's interesting to think about you know the, the way things are in the world particularly at this very moment what that will do in future in terms of people's expectations and how they want to live and whether there is more you know of a move to to wanting to get back to sort of more of a basic type of living than, than we've been experiencing. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more information about the Plotlanders and our contributors, you can head to our website. If you enjoy this episode and would like to be notified about future episodes, then subscribe on your platform. 